This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming from coming at you unlive from not a place. <laughs> Is that Actually, why the screen's dark when you talk? Oi, 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 coming at you unlive from not a place. Uh, we also have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, and that's Gil Tayar. Hi, everybody. Uh, from Tel Aviv, Israel. Uh, pretty far away. Awesome. Uh, do you want to just give us a brief introduction, who you are, why you're famous? I'm famous. Whoa. I'm, I'm Gil Tayar. Pretty much I'm from the 80s in terms of uh, programming. I did the whole DOS thing and before Windows and everything, but uh, my, it's my passion. It's, uh, it's like a hobby of mine, and for some reason I get paid to do it. Since early 2000s, uh, testing the code I write has become a, a huge passion of mine. Started in C++, moved to Java, and then slowly and gradually migrated to dynamic languages like Python and then JavaScript. Famous, uh, I don't know, I've done lots and lots of conferences, lots and lots of talks. Formerly at Wix, I, I, I was uh, doing conferences uh, with Wix, and now uh, I took the passion of testing and, and moved it to uh, a company called Applitools, uh, which does visual testing. And they wanted me, first of all, for a software project of theirs, uh, which maybe we'll have time to talk about, and then to also do developer relationships. Uh, so I, I get to combine my two biggest passions, which is uh, talking, mentoring, and developing software. Nice. Now, we, we brought you to talk about testing JavaScript. And I mean, I've been doing this long enough to where I remember when it was extremely painful. Mm. And like the only thing around was Jasmine. So what does is, what is the landscape look like now as far as testing and testing tools go? I think the landscape has evolved along with JavaScript. JavaScript in the last three, four years, five maybe, there's a, there's a huge renaissance the tools have um, moved really forward, if we're both in the front end and in the back end. I mean, the whole idea of Node, the whole idea of NPM as, as an ecosystem where both front end and back end people, developers can, can use packages in JavaScript that was unheard of uh, almost five years ago. Uh, and testing has moved forward, both in the back end and in the front end. Today, we have lots of testing tools both in terms, in terms of testing frameworks, things have coalesced into Mocha and, and Jest. Uh, sorry for all the my, uh, you know, aficionados of other, of other tools, but those are the most used. And front-end testing, suddenly we can do front-end testing, which was not possible uh, five years ago. I think the major, in, in terms of front-end testing, the major change was the introduction of React. I believe React was the first framework that you could test without having to do an end-to-end -end test like browser automation, Selenium WebDriver, let's bring up the, the application and test the whole application, which is heavy duty, but rather, you know, you can test one component, two components together, etc. You can even test them under Node. So that was, for me, the, the big turning point in, in front-end testing. From then on, it, it was clear sailing. I mean, 
It's not that everybody tests, unfortunately, and we can talk about that later, but it's, it's slowly, slowly getting there. So you said not everybody tests, and unfortunately, that's my experience as well. I love tests. I'll advocate for them forever and ever and ever and ever. There's some gray area, though, when you're at a startup and you're trying to prove product market fit. So how do you treat that? If you have to get something into production, but you're not quite sure if it's actually the thing that needed to be in production, do you think that falls on product to try to determine that before you actually build something and try to poke holes in that further? Or do you think there is a case sometimes for just like kind of pushing something up and then you test it later? Have you had experience in that kind of realm? In 2000, I founded a, a co-founded a company called Web Collage. We decided early on that we would test everything even at the beginning. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I wish um, everybody came to that conclusion. <laughs> That's the prerogative of a founder, of a technical founder. We actually came through and, and did that. And since then, I don't think I can today, I, I probably can, but I don't think I can test a right code without testing. But it's a big question. If you have like this um, huge front-end app and you want to do a POC as quickly as possible, do you write the test for that? And you really want to take it, you know, you want to push it out in a month. And my answer will probably, well, practically, I would say yes. So do it in two months, not not in one month. But if, you know, if, if push comes to shove, I say, no, don't test, but at least do some happy path end-to-end testing. That, that takes like, you know, a day or two to building the tests uh, using browser automation tools like Selenium WebDriver, Puppeteer, or Cypress, and building those end-to-end tests. Once things start coalescing, you can start going back and building integration tests and, and unit tests for everything. And for me, testing is it's not really an option. I call writing code without tests fear-driven development. I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It is so true. It is. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, the horror of changing code without having tests, I, I don't know. I, I've, it's been a long time since I've done that. And the idea is that if you're not writing tests, anything you do, changing code, adding code, deleting code, is basically impossible. So you write with fear in your heart, knowing full well that you're, you know, introducing bugs. So you're starting to hack things. You're not rewriting and restructuring and refactoring in the correct way. You're just adding a little bit here, a little bit there. Your design is driven by fear and not by what you think is right. So, yeah, don't, don't maybe, you know, in the, in the beginning, don't write those tests, write some end-to-end tests. But after that, I don't think there is any, any other way. I totally agree. I mean, I could, as I'm sure, both of us could probably go on and on and on. But it's also shocking how many times people go back and write tests and say, well, I actually had to refactor the code to do the test. And so, I mean, that's just another huge thing. It's so going to make your code better. I would say that what it's okay so for me one i want to do tests when tests are clear that they provide value right like if it's super clear i'm writing tests because it's helping me not because it's some mundane thing that people say that i should do right so that's that's number one number two i find that sometimes well a lot for me with what i do and maybe i'm just doing it wrong but 
I'm in a situation where I can't write the test because I would have to know first that the business logic is correct in order to write a test that correctly tests what it would need to test. And I'm in this discovery mode of what is the business logic? What is this thing? Like, because I, I don't know yet. I'm not uh, just developing your cookie cutter rest apps. Um, but I, I want to do more testing. I find integration tests to be a little heavy handed because you have to have the database set up and you have to have this set up and that set up and like everything has to be set up. So I really want something that's small but also can work in this flow where I'm like shifting. And that's where I'd really like some advice. I'll give it a try. And it's thoughts that have been coalescing in my mind, like for the last uh, month or two, there are two major schools of testing. And I'm I'm really generalizing here. One school is the TDD school, uh, test-driven development, which advocates uh, what I call the pyramid. Lots of unit tests, less integration tests and really little end-to-end tests. In this school, code coverage is the end-all be-all. You want to go to like 100%, 95% code coverage. And the way you do that is you write all your code as little classes or little units, functions, whatever, and test those. And if if those units need other units, you still isolate them using mocks. Uh, That's one school. And and the idea is also there, write the tests before writing the code. The tests will lead you as a design tool and not just, you know, for the sake of writing tests. That is one school. The other school is, I call it the diamond of testing. Kent Dodds, in in his brilliant article, uh, uh, Write Tests, Not Too Many, Mostly Integration, beautiful uh, title, says write few unit tests, lots of integration, and very little end-to-end tests. This school, which I'm part of, says don't mock too much. When you write, you test everything as unit tests, you're basically not enabling yourself to change all those units all the time because every time you change them, you have to rewrite the tests. And every time you change the relationship between those units, you have to write, rewrite so many tests that it becomes a burden. What should have enabled you to, what should have helped you refactor and, and not be in fear of refactoring actually inhibits you to doing that. So I, I would say to me, it seems like unit tests are the easiest type of tests to identify in terms of like, this helps me. Like if I need something that's going to, that's going to parse or that's going to treat a set of data in a particular way, it's like, I just reach for unit testing because that helps me code faster. So I think, but, but like you're saying, that's not like 90% of my code is not that. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I do unit tests all the time. Valid, email validation is my always my, my go-to example. But anything where you have data, algorithm, comes data in, in various forms or uses and which has very little interface with other classes or other functions, that's perfect for unit testing. And you should unit test those. But as you said, most of our code today is glue. It's it's not really you know functions like we learn in in uh, in, in computer science. It's just glue gluing together all sorts of stuff. Whether it's databases, whether it's uh, browser stuff, or whether it's units that we combine together to build an application, and those are best 
tested not as separate units with lots of mocking all around, but rather as a medium-sized integration suites. The opponents of that say those integration tests are really, really, really slow and really, really, really flaky. True, but there are ways around that. We can talk about it in front end and in the back end. So in the back end, don't use databases. Use a mock of a database, a real mock, which basically fakes all your a data access layer using in-memory stuff, and then all those tests that used to be very slow now run in milliseconds. In the browser... But that seems like a lot of work, though. Yes. The instrumentation is, like, the hardest part. I was just going to say, like, that's the thing that I, I loathe is the database stuff, because databases never map cleanly. Like, even, you know, playing with GraphQL... It's got all these adapters, but then it just seems like it becomes adapter hell. It's almost like callback hell. Like, I hate this database stuff. And mock it. I totally agree, but I don't think we should mock the database. That, that's crazy. I think we should mock the layer that we use above the database. If we write things correctly, we will have a layer that speaks business logic keys, our business logic keys, to the layer above it. That business logic layer will do database stuff. But if I write a fake that implements that business logic layer in terms of memory maps, you know, hash maps and and whatever, like in-memory database kind of stuff, then, you know, it's pretty simple because you just need a few tables and whatever. Joins become really easy. Yes, it takes time. You know, uh, what I find when writing tests is that the first 10, 20, 30 tests take the time building that infrastructure, building those fakes, building the testing tools, building the scripts, et cetera, et cetera. But once you have that, adding to that is is like zero time. You're you're on the runway, yeah. Uh, Breaking up out of the runway takes time. But once you're in the air, things go really, really, really fast. Yeah, I could see that. And and it seems like, I mean, like me, I like to do things the dumb way first most of the time because I end up not using a lot of frameworks because I I tend to become attracted to problems that are the need investigation. Mm-hmm. And so I do like the idea of actually mocking something out in memory first. I just, I'm not really clear on how that transition works out because once I start putting the database stuff in there, then... I'm actually not a proponent of testing first, test first development. I believe that we should write the code and then write the tests. So what I would do in this case, let's say I have an application with lots of database access. So I build like a set of, uh, you know, I start building the application. I don't need all the queries. When starting to build the feature, I need like five, six, seven queries. I write the business logic layer using a database test it with a database, and then write a small mock. It should take no more than like a couple of hours that mocks that business logic layer. And then I can have hundreds of integration tests using that database layer. So I test the database layer with a real database. That's one. And then all the other tests just use that mock database layer, uh, that in-memory database layer to be really, really fast. And I do that, and that is the most important thing. I do that after I write the code, not before, because I, I'm, a, I'm an exploratory kind of guy. Uh, I, I don't know where I'm going when I start writing code. 
it's not like I have this big picture. I just it comes to me as as I, as I code. And We're I soul brothers. <laughs> exactly. I believe most of developers. Why? That's why it's so difficult to do test first driven. I don't know what I'm going to write. So I write the whole thing. I write the whole feature, and then I write the tests. But after a few years of writing tests, you start knowing how to write the code so that tests will come easier. So can you explain that part a little bit? Because I do find myself quite often when I go to write my tests, I'm teasing apart code that was a little bit difficult to tease apart, you know? And what's what's a good, like, six principles, and and, and you'll burn belly fat and not have to struggle when you rewrite code for tests? (laughs) Oh, I, I think the biggest one is separation of concerns. Don't have the same unit, whether it be a function, class, module, package. Do both, let's say, browser stuff and business logic stuff. Don't have the database layer do really weird things. It's a database layer. Have it translate between business logic and stuff and queries in the database. But the real business logic stuff needs to be above that layer. Once you do separation of concerns, then all your database stuff, or if you were talking browser, then all your browser stuff is separated into things that you can fake pretty easily. And don't uh, don't require those modules. If we're talking JavaScript, don't import those modules directly. Use dependency injection to have them sent over to you. If you if you want, you use the real stuff that's in production. And if when you're running tests, give that function of the tests. So uh, sorry, the mock. Yes. So, so the first principle is separation of concerns, definitely. All right. You mentioned dependency injection, which I think many people for the past several years have come to understand dependency injection as Angular's dynamic dependency injection, which I don't think is what you're talking about. So Could you tell me what you mean by dependency injection? What that looks like in code? Yes, yes. I loathe dependency injection. (laughs) Wait, what? What? What happened here? Um, It's not that I loathe. I understand there there are big projects that sometimes you need to do that. But what I'm talking about is very, very light dependency injection, where a module accepts, you know, a reference to another module to an object with all those methods and just uses it and combining all those modules and sending over modules from one to another is just you know a main the main code uh, creating new classes or or whatever objects in javascript and and having them point one to another i'm i'm not a big fan of of frameworks like spring or or, or i'm i'm sure there are some in javascript but uh, fortunately not a lot i'm i'm really a fan of if i want to do database stuff I don't want to require the database layer. I just want to accept it in my construction in my constructor as you know as a parameter and just so, save it and use it. If I'm hearing correctly, it sounds like one of the things you do is you have a main function and you're doing requires more in the main function. It's kind of like a flat-ish dependency object, and you're passing that or the pieces of that into the components that need to use it, and those components are not doing a lot of requires. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. And and I do it only when necessary. It is not a religion for me. So if if we I have static code that doesn't need to be mocked 
then yeah, I require it in the in the submodules. Not not a problem. I do it only for those layers that I will I know will need to be mocked. And usually those layers are things like database layers, message queue layers. If we're talking backend, but I mean that sounds like something that you really learned how to choose from experience. Well, it took me eighteen years. Oh. <laughs> And I've made I've made my mistakes along the way. I remember at Wix uh, we had this back end piece, and I said, "Yeah, I don't want to fake, uh, you know, the SQL uh, layer of, of of my application. I'll just um, run Docker with my SQL, and it'll be okay." And that was a huge mistake. Uh, integration tests suddenly started taking a long time, and it was a pain to run. I believe. Uh, a test should run like two, five minutes max for, for a package, max. So one thing that I kind of want to push toward is, you know, you write a feature, you write the tests, and you've kind of talked about some of the de decisions you make while architecting and creating these new features. But what if you have a really messy legacy system and you're looking at it and you're going, okay, uh, putting some tests around this would probably help me mentally map things out and it'll give me some safety net for when I have to go refactor, change this thing, you know, get out of that fear-driven development a little bit. How do you recommend going into that? I mean, do you start adding dependency injection where needed or do you just start writing tests for what you think you can get tested or how, how do you approach that? Right. I had that situation uh, like two or three companies back in a company called CloudShare. They asked me to move from the back-end VM management kind of uh, back-end to a more regular CRUD-style uh, database application. And to my horror, there were almost no tests. Uh, <gasps> yeah. I, 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 I couldn't breathe. Um, I, I really, I really, really couldn't be, I was saying like, what do you mean? I need to run my application every time I change code and, and you know, and test it. I, I'm so not used to it. I never run my application on my desktop, on my, on my computer. I just run the tests and push to deploy. And, and they say, yeah, I said, no, please, please give me two to three weeks to write tests and, and then I'll be yours for forever and ever. Uh, and, and what I did was I started with the high-level code, with the high-level tests. So I needed, uh, testing uh, is, for, for a lot of the TDD people, is all about design. For me, uh, it's about confidence. Again, it's the two schools of, of thought. Uh, testing is all about confidence, and I needed that, you know, 80% confidence. And that 80% confidence is, can be given using high-level tests, end-to-end -end tests. So I wrote end-to-end -end tests using browser automation tools uh, like Selenium. Uh, back then, it was the only option. Uh, they were really slow. They were somewhat flaky. I didn't have a lot of them because I, I don't like a lot of end-to-end -end tests. But at least they gave me the confidence and the ability to change code knowing that I won't break anything major. Once I had that, I started moving down the stack towards integration tests, did a few gave me more coverage to get that confidence. I, I started looking where exactly should I put those important integration tests to give me that confidence. I put in that look, 20, 30 integration tests, started building an infrastructure so that from now on, everything I write will have tests. Once I did that, I started coding. And every time it's scout, what's the name? The scout camp rule, leave everything in a better 
way than, than what it was when you came. Everything, once I had those integration tests, became easier. So I could refactor more easier, add more tests easier. And I never got what I had if I had started Greenfield, but it was slowly getting there. It's a two-year process. Uh, I, I know a lot of companies say, oh, yeah, we have to have tests. Let's stop everything and write all the tests. I think that is a wrong way to approach it. Take a two-week thing, write the infrastructure for the test, write the major test to give you confidence, and then slowly over the years, I'm talking about yearly process, improve that. Um, I like that pragmatic, iterative approach. That sounds really attainable. Can I ask for a clarification on one thing? When you say integration test, what do you mean? That, that's a big, because everybody understands unit tests. Unit and, tests and, and tests generally. And end-to-end -end tests, yeah, in, in, in some ways. So there's some vagueness there, but in general, everybody understands that. Integration tests, actually, the TDD, uh, the school of thought, uh, growing object-oriented software is their, is their Bible, Goose book. They don't talk about integration tests. Integration tests in their terminology is test the, test the database layer against the real database. They're testing the integration between their code and third-party services, whether it's database, message queue, browser, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Definitely, that is, that, are, that is integration tests. But for me, integration tests are more importantly taking a set of classes, units, functions, uh, as they are in the application, just testing them together, not and and without the database layer, message queue, browser, etc., 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 so that they can run in millisecond time and not minute time. Difficult to do, and in the front end world, before React, it was basically impossible to do. But if slowly you can uh, ensure, but you need to have those good fakes if we're talking back end or using JSDOM if you're talking front end. Did that answer your question? Yeah. And again, I think integration tests, and, and I believe Kent Dodds in, in front-end world agrees with me, give the most bang for the buck. You're testing big blocks that can work together and not the whole application. You're doing it in milliseconds time so you can write a lot of tests. They're pretty easy to write once you have that infrastructure in place, those fakes or the JSDOM or whatever. And they don't inhibit refactoring. So you can change your entire uh, class structure and, and, and design inside. And, those, and most of the integration tests will need really little uh, changes to, 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 to themselves. Sometimes a bit, but you know, mostly no changes. So that's the most bang for the buck. And I think in the end, that's the pragmatic approach. Find the tests that give you the most bang for the buck. Make sure that they run quickly and you'll be in testing Nirvana. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat 
at Sentry.io. So how much do the tools matter? Like Cypress versus uh, Selenium or oh, Jest versus this right. versus the other? Just, I'm curious no, about your answer first. Oh, I'm first. Okay. I think the, the revolutions made, made mattered. In the back end, the, the big revolution was Docker. In the front end, the big revolution was JSDOM. Those are the two revolutions in my testing life in the past five years. But whether you use Jest or Mocha or even Jasmine or, or Tape or um, Ava, or whether you use whatever uh, in the back end, a sign-on or whatever for mocking, I don't think it matters. I think it's the tests that matter, not, not the tools. I pretty much agree with that. I just think there are some tools that are a little bit outdated at this point. Specifically for integration testing, I think Cypress and Puppeteer are far and away better than some of the older tools. I, I got a lot of uh, uh, flack. Uh, I, I just wrote a, a blog post, uh, Cypress versus Selenium WebDriver. I'm trying not to say which one is better, but trying to figure out, to, to define how it's different philosophies that led to, led to different kinds of tools. I still got flack from the Selenium uh, developers. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to be gentle. But yes, I, I'm a huge believer in, in modern tooling, so I will never use Jasmine, and I prefer puppeteer for end-to-end testing. And yes, it, it does give you some edge, but in the end, it's the tests that do the thing. Yeah, no tests, or any tests are better than no tests. <sighs> yeah. I'm kind of curious, would you be willing to expand on what the Selenium folks were saying was still something potentially valid that the other tools like Puppeteer or Cypress may not provide? Because to me, it was like a a no-brainer, but maybe I'm missing something. Well, I'll tell you what I I think about, and I I do believe it's different tools for stuff. Cypress was was built for front-end developers. Front-end developers mostly don't care about cross-browser. So they tested in Chrome and, and that's fine. Functionally, that's fine. Um, most browsers today are really, really similar in that regard. So if it works in Chrome, it'll probably work in Firefox. And if it doesn't, we'll fix that bug. Uh, Selenium was built with a QA mindset, end-to-end test. We need to do cross-browser stuff. So we need support for IE, Edge, Firefox, Chrome, and whatever. So in that regard, Cypress is Chrome only. Another difference is Cypress doesn't care. Again, because it's written for front-end developers, Cypress doesn't care about any other language other than JavaScript. It, you know, you write your tests in JavaScript. Selenium, write whatever you want. They have language bindings for JavaScript, for Java, C Sharp, Ruby, Python, maybe others. Let me add one other quick thing because I want to make sure people are aware. So it is my understanding that Cypress is going to support IE 11 in the future. I've heard that Firefox is their first. Um, I think I think so too. Yeah. Maybe I don't know, but that issue has been open like for more than a year. My guessing is that their priority is not there, and I have to admit, I kind of agree with him. I kind of agree with. I think it's Brian Mann. Yeah, they said they were focusing on mobile more. I think it's becoming less of an issue, cross-browser testing, yep. than it was because browsers are uh, converging, have already converged, actually. There is one area that it's still important to do, like cross-browser and, and, and others, and I'll, I'll touch that. It's, it's the visual area. I mean, 
Unfortunately, Firefox doesn't render the, your HTML, CSS as, as exactly like Chrome and Safari doesn't, and IE11 definitely doesn't. So it is important, to, I believe, to test visually across these different browsers, not to mention the horror of testing responsive widths. I want to test the iPhone width, and I want to test uh, tablet width, and I want to test 1024 and 2000 and whatever. And I want to test because my CSS is reacting to those weights. It's not just, you know, how it looks. It's basically uh, ifs in, in my CSS that I need to test. So I still believe that visual testing, it's still important to do cross-browser testing. So that's basically the first important thing in, in, uh, in Selenium. Selenium is a, is a Swiss knife. It can do everything both in languages and in browsers. Uh, Cypress is very, very focused on a specific thing, writing end-to-end slash integration tests for front-end development. In that case, it needs to be really, really fast. It has something that Selenium doesn't have, which is built-in tools to mock your HTTP requests so that you can mock your basically your back-end uh, server to enable you to write those front-end tests and have them executed very, very, very quickly. So that's another way you can see the mindset, the, the front-end development mindset and the end-to-end -end QA mindset between these two tools. And again, as front-end developers, we look at Cypress and say, yeah, we want speed and we want ease of use. And the QA, the people that do end-to-end -end tests of, of those big applications, they say, we need cross-browser compatibility and we, and we know Java. So again, two mindsets, different tools, which is better, it's up to you. He said politically. <laughs> Just trying to think if I have any other things to dive on. We, we can talk on Puppeteer. Uh, Puppeteer is probably the one that I haven't used. I, I've used Cypress or played with it at least, and same with Selenium. What's different about Puppeteer? Puppeteer is much, much more like uh, Selenium. Much more like Selenium in that it drives the browser out of process. It's not in Cypress, your tests run inside the browser. Mm -hmm. uh, in a very magical and weird sort of way. Puppeteer, you just drive, you know, you click and you navigate and you type and you do all sorts of things. The reason it's, it's great is that Selenium, again, has to be cross-browser. Puppeteer is and will always be Google Chrome. And, and the reason I say that with, with some amount of confidence is that Puppeteer is a very thin layer above something called the CDP the Chrome DevTools protocol. It is the protocol that the debuggers use to debug uh, Chrome code and Chrome HTML, etc. When you open uh, Command-Shift-I to open the inspector, the DOM inspector, and you can put breakpoints and look at the code, all that uh, functionality is driven by CDP. It's the browser driving itself using CDP. But CDP can be used outside the browser. And Puppeteer, it's a beautiful protocol, by the way. Kudos to, to the Chrome team. It's amazingly well built. I'm always fascinated. The incredible thing, it's an internal tool, and yet the documentation for CDP is excellent. Puppeteer is even better. It's a thin layer above CDP, which gives it more JavaScript-like feel. But the speed is amazing because it's using the internal protocol and because it's built for Chrome. It's, I did a rough check and it was on par and sometimes even faster than Cypress. I'm not sure. I, mean, I, I may be wrong here because it was a quick check, but it's definitely much faster than, than Selenium WebDriver. Uh, really cool tool, very JavaScripty, but again, only if you want to use Chrome. 
only if you want to use Chrome. Makes sense. So one other question that I have then as far as testing goes is when should you be running your tests? Because I'm a big fan of continuous integration. Um, I like running some unit tests or some fast running tests, I should say. That's really what I care about when I'm doing my development. But how do you tend to break that down? Well, my way is really easy. I, given that I'm, I'm not running the application at any point in time, I'm, I'm talking mostly backend mm-hmm. uh, applications, I can't not run the tests. Running the tests is the way to check that the feature is working. And that once I have this golden rule, never run your application locally, uh, but only in production, and maybe if you have a staging environment and staging, once I have that golden rule, I can't not write tests because there is no other way to test that feature. And so when do I run the tests? All the time. This means that for me, tests must uh, follow the two to five minute rule, must run in in, in two to five minutes. And and it's a problem for big apps, like millions Mm -hmm. of lines of code. And the way I solve that, and, and I always believe, I firmly believe in this idea is that if you have uh, one unit of millions of lines of code, you have a problem any which way you look at it, with tests, without tests. It's a problem, especially if you're working in a, in a big team. So what I do is I divide my code into very well-established packages with very thick lines between them. Packages, NPM packages. And all, each NPM packages has its own set of tests. So when I'm testing a feature, I'm not running all the tests for all the NPM packages. I do that in CI, but I'm, ri- I'm running only the tests of that NPM package, which then makes it much, much easier for me to run the tests and to develop, first of all, because I have much less tests to run. And second, because when I have a package and it's only uh, a couple of thousands of lines of code, I can understand it much, much better. So if we give the example of the database layer earlier, maybe that database layer is a package, an NPM package that I develop separately from the business logic package. And maybe if I have features like big features like users and admin or whatever, I separate each and every one of them into packages. Even better is to separate them, if we're talking backend world, is is to separate them into microservices, which is also a thing I do. So the answer to when is like for me all the time. Now, uh, you, when you say that you the only way to run the test is with the code in production, I mean, I guess you can you know you can test your microservices or test some of that stuff in CI, but yeah, you run tests against production. That seems a little bit. Oh no no no! no. First of all, yes, I do run tests against production. I, I, after each deploy, I, I do a happy path test on production. Right, that, that's for sure. Um, uh, and 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 if it that test fails, it rolls back automatically. But that was not what I meant. No, no, definitely don't run tests uh, against production. No, no, I, I run the tests locally on my computer, but that's the only way to run the application. Right. Run the test. Oh, I see. So you spin up a version of the, the application and then run the test against that, as opposed to what I see is a lot of people, they, they run the test, they like load the library and then run the tests. Exactly. So what I do when, when I'm talking like uh, integration testing in the back end, I require the app, uh, make it listen, and then, you know, throw HTTP requests at it and test the responses. If I can go one level d- uh, deeper in, in, in my business logic, then, then that's fine. 
uh, also not test the HTTP part, but test the business logic, then, then that's fine. And if you're in a microservice world where each microservice isn't huge amounts of functionality, those tests can take like less than a minute uh, to run. So I add the feature to that microservice. It takes less than a minute. I push deploy. Got it. Yep. And amazingly enough, it works. A lot of people like saying, yeah, 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 yeah. right, right, right. Uh, I, I don't believe you. But you need to get there to see it. It does work. Uh, it does work. It's difficult. You need to believe Firmly believe in, in the fact that it can happen. But once you're there uh, in that um, uh, testing nirvana, sort of, and, and, and it, obviously it's not perfect, but, but it's uh, as close as I can make it, then yes, you write the feature, write the tests for the feature, run all the tests, uh, make them pass, push to deploy. Are you typically writing against JSDOM or using one of these other tools to do it? Uh, when when uh, when I did front end, I, I constantly move between front end and back end. I'm never full stack and doing both at once. I think it's so big. Each each of those areas is so big. I can't encompass both of them at a at a given point in time. But I'm, I'm when I was at Wix, uh, I was at the back end part, and and uh, my manager asked me to move to front end, uh, and it was a greenfield project. We started the front end like uh, zero code. And again, uh, oh my God! How, how do we how do we write tests for front end? I didn't know how to write tests for front end, and and the the, the idea of running Selenium WebDriver and running hundreds of tests on Selenium WebDriver, it, it just doesn't work. It will be flaky and very 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 slow. So I had to invent a new uh, a new thing, and I invented and, I, and I'm putting air quotes here because I certainly didn't invent it. A lot of people invented it. Uh, at the same time, I believe it was in the air. The idea of using the package called JSDOM, the incredibly useful package called JSDOM, the revolutionary package called JSDOM, which is basically an implementation of DOM in Node. So you get all the DOM window document and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, local storage, all that, but without the rendering part. So you can't see the page, and it's all running under Node in milliseconds. And now you can like. Use React DOM dot render, render your whole application. It's running under Node. You can click on elements. You can query selector, find elements, click on them, or type in them, or do whatever event you want on them, and and figure out whether they're working or not based on you know other DOM elements, just like you would do in browser automation, except for the fact that it's synchronous. Almost no asynchronicity here. And so no async await, and it's fast. Again, milliseconds time. We had hundreds of tests running in, in 30 seconds. It, it, for me, it was a game changer moment. And then I found out that I'm not the only one. Uh, we found out there are others using that tool. And now FBJest uh, comes with it by default. So if you run a jest in its natural default way, you get document and window. So you can just react dom.render or use Angular 2 and above, you know, not AngularJS or Vue, and it just works. Nice. Now, uh, in our prep docs, you put in something about a story where you forced a new front-end developer to not run the app in the browser for two months. <laughs> yeah, it was part of that uh, Wix moment and... It again comes to my idea, which is a bit radical, of never running your application locally. So I found out uh, that the developer was uh, running the app locally, 
not for CSS reasons. I understand for CSS reasons, you can't really develop uh, CSS without, you know, just trying out, you know, the floats and the grids and the whatnot, flex boxes. If you don't try it out, it never works. But for, for, for business logic stuff, and uh, the developer was trying it out, and I, I pointed it uh, to them. And she said, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write tests. And she was like, uh, I, and I believed her, but I, I really, really wanted her to get into the idea of writing the tests as a way to develop the application. So I forbid her, air quotes, to touch a browser for like two months, get into the idea of writing the tests and being confident that the code works through the tests and not through seeing it happen in the browser. Mm. Did it work? Yeah, oh yeah, it, it, it definitely worked. Again, front-end is difficult because it's so visual and you know things like drag and drop, if, if you don't run the application and test it and, and tweak your code, it's, it's you know, there's, there's a limit to the, to the idea of not running an application. But certainly back-end, is, it, it does work that way. And even in front end, I mean, yes, some things you just can't develop through tests, but most of the things you can. So do them at least. And it did work. Um, I think it changed the way uh, she thought of, of testing. So what are you working on these days? Okay, Applet Tools, uh, as I said, is a visual testing company. Visual testing is when I saw Applitools, when I heard about them and uh, applied for the job, it was like, oh my, oh wow, they, they, they've, they've solved the problem that I couldn't solve in testing. And that is, how do I test the application, that the application, validate the application looks okay? How do I do visual regression? And I tried it. Um, you, you, what you do is you uh, run Selenium or Puppeteer, um, navigate to the page, do whatever you need, then take a screenshot save it to the disk, next time the test runs, you do it again, compare screenshots. Mm -hmm. uh, and I failed miserably. You know, it was the only time I said, okay, for CSS and HTML and the visual thing, just check it manually. I had no other solution. And why did I fail? Uh, easy. It's never the same. Those screenshots are never the same, even if, it's, if, even if everything is exactly the same. It's little differences in graphic cards and in Chrome versions and in operating systems. So every time another developer got that, ran the test, they would have different screenshots, like itsy-bitsy differences, anti-aliasing kind of stuff. And, and you know, you can up the level of, uh, you can say, ignore 10%, et cetera, but we were constantly... Upping up, 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 and in the end, it just didn't work. And the whole management of the of of the baseline images, you have to move it mm -hmm. from folder to folder and everything. I, I really, really tried. You, you know, I, I think we can understand by now how, how important testing is to me, but I failed. And then Applitools comments and and you know uh, said, yeah, we we've solved the visual uh, testing thing. And the way they do that is through algorithms that check the differences in a, in a good way. So, so that, that's what Apple Tools does. But the interesting thing about Apple Tools is, is how when you write, run the tests, they take the screenshot locally using Selenium or Puppeteer or whatever, mm -hmm. take the screenshot locally and upload it to the Apple Tools server to, for the algorithm to do its work, which is cool. But that means that if you want to test in uh, Chrome and Firefox and Safari with different widths, you need to run those tests again and again and again. And those are 
a browser automation test. Those are end-to-end tests. They are very flaky, very slow. And that's great, and they've solved a huge problem. But for front-end development, where you need those results like quickly, it, it wasn't enough. So what we came up with, and, and that is my project at Apple Tools, is instead of uploading a screenshot, you upload the DOM. You upload the HTML. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, you upload the HTML in a serialized form, not not mm-hmm. not text. And you upload all the assets, the images, the CSS, the SVGs, the fonts, et cetera, et cetera. You upload them to our servers. We store them in a way that we can serve them later using a URL. And then we send a job over and we have a grid of hundreds and, and in the future thousands of Chrome and Firefoxes waiting to render those pages. And then we, we choose a Chrome, give it the URL for that screenshot, and, and boom, we have a screenshot which we send over to the server, which does the whole diffing process as we talked before. So you've got static site generation. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's, so, yeah, so it's comparing the output of the static site. Exactly. Now, once we have that static site, first of all, that static site, if you think about it, from, if, if you have like 30 pages in your app, or if you're doing component testing and you have like 300 components, most of those static resources, the static assets, the images, and the seeds, they're the same. So we have this trick where we don't upload it again and again and again. We upload it once, and then we know it's the same thing, so we don't upload it. So uploading the whole static site is incredibly quickly, under a second, usually. Like the first time, it's a couple of seconds, and then it's like uh, under a second. That's one thing that makes it fast. The second thing is we don't wait for the results. So if you, want, if you took a, like a snapshot, we don't wait for the whole rendering and the diffing, et cetera. We continue with the test and we check all of them, all of the, all of the snapshots in parallel. So if you have like 300 components, we don't check each and every one serially. We check them in parallel in our, in our, in our visual grid. And that parallelization means that those 300 components will be checked in like 10 seconds altogether. Mm-hmm. Same for all the pages of your app. You have 30 pages, 10 seconds. Not only that, we can check them in Chrome and in Firefox and in this width and in that width, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, due to parallelization in 10 seconds. So for, for me, this is a game changer. It, it, it makes visual testing accessible not only uh, to QA, but also to front-end developers because they get the speed that they need for visual testing. So that is what I'm working on, mostly backend uh, stuff, uh, the, that visual grid that runs Chrome and Firefox just for rendering. By the way, we don't run the tests there. We just render the screenshots there. Oh, okay. Well, anything else we should jump on before we do picks? Ooh, uh, no, I think we've got it covered. I'm good. Ooh, the picks. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do picks then. Amy, do you have some picks for us? Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. 
I do. I'm going to pick one. Um, so my experience in tech has been that because it is such a field where kind of your brain is just exposed for the world to see, people tend to not be super vulnerable and they don't tend to speak up very easily when they're confused about something or uh, they might not be an expert or they just don't really like to ask questions all that much. Um, that's just kind of been my experience in general. I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but it's kind of a pattern I've seen. Um, so my pick for today is just going to be a post uh, on ideas.ted.com. And it's uh, just how showing vulnerability helps build a stronger team. And that's going to be it for me today. I thought it was pretty good. That sounds awesome. AJ, what are your picks? Well, so I was on the audiobook site, which shall not be named, and looking for the extreme ownership because you had picked it, and I've I keep on seeing and hearing about it, so I want to listen to it. But so something something else caught my eye, and so that's what I've been listening to mostly this past week, called Never Split the Difference. Negotiating as if your life had or depended on it. Oh, so you've listened to this one too? Uh, nope, it's on my list. Oh, okay, well, the title caught me because I've learned in my life that if you compromise, you're basically creating a lose-lose situation. Like compromise in the way that we colloquially use it is not win-win, it's lose-lose. It's like, I don't get what I want and you don't get what you want. So that's why the title caught me. And this has been like extremely entertaining as well as educational. And I don't, I don't think I've gotten like all the educational value out of it yet, but because this guy was an FBI negotiator for like hostages and stuff. So he's switching back between stories of like experiences with the FBI and then like experiences with, with business school students and business friends with negotiating skills and, and then just like some general people skills too, but just like the stories are really engaging. And I just, I really agree in heart with that premise that you're not looking for the 50-50 solution. You're looking for the solution where you're satisfied, which is, I mean, kind of weird in the context of like hostages. Like I'm pretty satisfied if I only had to pay $5,000 to get my aunt back as opposed to having to come up with $75,000, though I, I certainly am not satisfied that my aunt was, you know, taken hostage, but whatever. Anyway, that. So I'm going to pick that. I think that's really cool. And then um, I'm going to do a little self five. I've been working on this project called Telebit. I haven't talked too much about it. I think I mentioned it in one other show, but basically the premise is if you've got, if, you, if you're doing local development, like Maybe I'm picking the wrong time to pick this because of our uh, our special guest today. But if you're doing local development, you want to actually be able to see things in, in the production-ish environment where you've got an HTTPS certificate and you've got a domain, you're able to do webhooks and blah, 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 blah. That's one of the things Telebit is for. I personally am using it every day. I've got music on one computer that stays at home. And so I have it just serving that. It doesn't have authentication yet, so can't tell you the secret URL, but it's just serving my music and I listen to it and use it pretty much every day. And so I'm just like, 
it's this project I've been working on for a while. It's it's related to the home server project that I've been working on for years. And I'm just I'm just really excited that it's that's coming together. And and so I'd I'd, I'd be happy to it's it's ugly and it doesn't work like perfectly, but it works well enough that I feel okay telling people about it. And by the time this airs, we might even have the Electron app out. So I'd love to love to hear feedback. Sounds good. Where do they check it out? Oh yeah, Telebit. It's telebit.cloud is the website, and you'll also find it on npm. But don't install it from npm because I haven't been testing it installing with npm, and so it there's a, there's a bash installer that goes through checks and stuff. And on Windows, you have to install it on npm. But um, yeah, so it's it's telebit.cloud is the the website, and you get a free URL like reddragon42.telebit.io type thing, and mm-hmm. then you can get subdomains on it, and it's it's cool. I want to have you guys check it out and get feedback from you too, as my, my homies. All right. And I just also want to let people know as we're talking about this, cause I know timing matters and we're a couple months ahead. Um, we're recording this at the end of October, 2018. So if this episode comes out in like December or January, it'll probably be much more stable than he made it sound here. And it's, well, it's stable enough for me to be happy with it now. Right. Like I'm it, just saying it, it'll be a happier thing later. Yeah, I'm I'm expecting so. I'm it's it's yeah. So so definitely check it out. I'm gonna jump in with a couple of picks. One pick that I have, and this is a book series. It's funny because a lot of the sort of uh, fantasy or urban fantasy type books that I listen to, they're a lot more lighthearted than this one. But I've really been enjoying it. This one's a little bit darker, like the other ones. Uh, without the language, I, some of them, you know, have some cursing and I just, you know, my 12 year old, I just wouldn't let him listen to it. But if they took all that out, given the content, I'd probably let him listen to some of those. And then you, you know, you have your Harry Potters and stuff like that, which are very kid appropriate. This one is a bit darker. It's called Monster, Monster Hunters International. And uh, it's a series by Larry Correa. And uh, I, anyway, I've really, really been enjoying it. It's funny because, uh, you know, I mentioned the, the swearing. The swearing isn't as frequent in this one. Uh, but uh, the, the, the content and feel is a little bit darker. Um, but, but yeah, really, really enjoyed that. So if you're looking for a good um, fiction, uh, definitely check it out. And then I've been playing with a few tools that, that I've really been enjoying. Uh, one that I'm looking forward to diving into some is Metabase. And Metabase is a system you can use to connect to a database. So since I've been working on this uh, podcasting app, and I'm hoping to have it, you know, released, do do a general availability like AJ just did, or maybe beta, you know, I'd like to start tracking some of the stuff in it. And Metabase connects to your database and then gives you nice visual views into what your, uh, what your app is doing. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to digging into that. It is open source. And you can just click a couple of buttons and deploy it to Heroku. So uh, definitely check that out. Uh, Gil, what are your picks? I have lots of them. I'll have to choose. Um, okay, this is for my wife, Cat Zero. It's a scientific thriller, if you want. The lead person is a scientist, a woman scientist in academia. The, the thriller part isn't very thrilling, I have to admit. But for me, uh, my wife is a, is a physicist in academia, so it gave me some uh, insight, and, uh, and um, I, I do talk to her, but, but uh, some other insight into women in academia and the struggle uh, and the things they have to cope with on a day-to-day basis. 
obviously a lot of those things uh, are relevant to uh, women in, in high tech and in software development. There, there are similarities uh, in that case, but it's really well written. It's written by a woman. You can, you can feel that. And it really gave me, gave me the perspective about the whole issue of women in, in workplaces and, and in women in academia specifically. So I recommend this highly, Cat Zero. It's written well. Another really strange book, the, it's called The Origin of Consciousness in the Bicameral Mind, uh, which is a strange title. Um, it, it's a theory uh, written by, a, I think, a sociologist or, or psychologist. It's a theory that humankind did not develop consciousness until after uh, or during the, the Greek age. So like a thousand BC, before that, we were not conscious at all. And consciousness also developed in, in, in different ways uh, in the, at different times in different parts of the globe. And, you know, you, you start by, this is a weird theory, uh, no way. And, and, and the, the writer convinces you uh, piece by piece that it may be true. And, and uh, through a lot of chapters, it's you say either it's totally totally wrong or he or or the guy is onto something uh and it in in, in it, it's not the theory itself but the way it changed how i think about the way we act and the way we feel how much of it is conscious and how much of it isn't and starting to understand that most of what we do uh, even things that we think of as conscious stuff actually isn't it's going on in the back of our minds uh, so that was an, a huge, huge, huge eye-opener for, for me. Nice. Uh, people want to find you online. Where do they go? Medium. That's my personal blog, medium.com dash at Giltayar, uh, G-I-L-T-A-Y-A-R. Twitter, definitely Twitter. Uh, please follow. Uh, it's at it's Giltayar is the Twitter handle. Those are the two uh, places I browse. And obviously in the Apple Tools blog, I write a lot of posts that aren't in my, uh, in my personal blog. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us about testing. Um, hopefully we can dive a little deeper in some of these areas. Do you have some favorite resources for that? Yep. In, in terms of front-end testing, uh, Kent Dodds, I tend to agree to most of what he says. So anything that he says is, is, is great. Other than that, I have a, a series of articles on front-end testing in my Medium blog. It's not bad. It's, it's getting lots of clats. And you know, just start writing. It's going to be awkward in the beginning and uh, you won't know what to do, but just do it. That's uh, the shoe company that will not be named. Uh, <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming and uh, we'll be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.